Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio episode number 120. I'm Sean. I'm Jackie. Here to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Aristocats. Was this one that you grew up with? Yeah, this was on quite a bit in our house. It was one of my brother's favorites. I did not discover this movie until I was about 11 years old. We watched it a lot for like that year. You know what I'm saying? For that year to year and a half, because then you get into that weird in-between age where you don't watch the Disney animated classics nearly as much. So I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. So I was excited to kind of find it again, you know? Yeah, I watched it a lot as a kid because, like I said, my brother was requesting it. But then, yeah, it wasn't one, and it's not to say that I didn't like it, but it wasn't one that was in heavy rotation really past my childhood. It's not one that I rewatch a lot. Yeah, agreed. And I think there are several reasons for that, and, and we'll flesh them out over the course of the next hour or so. But there is a lot to discuss when it comes to the making of this film before we even get into the movie itself. Yeah, sadly, this was the last film that Disney approved before he passed away. So he did at least have some sort of hand in it because the Jungle Book was really the last one that he worked on and almost saw through to completion. Um, So in this case, it was being developed uh, for a two-part series for The Wonderful World of Disney. And he realized that it would probably be better served as an animated feature. So then they decided to do it as a feature length and they were kind of inspired by 101 Dalmatians, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot of parallels. (laughs) (laughs) But what they liked about it was that London served the story in 101 Dalmatians so much. They wanted to do something similar where it not only lends itself to the animation, but the city does become a part of the story and it influences the characters. Sure. So this is the first film of the 1970s it's the first film they did without Walt Disney so I think why don't we go into the plot here of the Aristocats the plot is 101 Dalmatians but with cats I mean yeah kind of there you go it's basically this it's almost the same thing it's pretty close So we meet Madame Bonfamille and her cats being chauffeured through the streets of Paris by their butler, Edgar. When they get home, Madame tells Edgar he should expect her attorney, George, to come by later to go over her will. Madame decided to leave her estate to the cats to make sure they are always cared for, and after their lifespan, Edgar will receive his inheritance. When Edgar overhears her plans, he gets very angry and develops a plan to eliminate the cats. While he is preparing dinner spiked with sleeping pills, Duchess works on teaching her kittens Berlio, Toulouse, and Marie some culture. After their painting and singing lessons, the cats eat along with their friend, a mouse named Roquefort, and everyone immediately dozes off. Edgar puts the sleeping cats in a basket and drives them out to the countryside where he is attacked by two hounds. During the chase, the basket falls out of the motorcycle and Duchess and her kittens wake up under a bridge, worried about Madame being alone. A storm rolls in and they must wait out the night in the basket before beginning their journey home. The next morning, Mr. Thomas O'Malley saunters by and sees Duchess and tries to hit on her, I mean help her, and offers to take her back to Paris, not realizing he would also be assisting her three kittens. 
O'Malley catches them a ride on a truck and doesn't plan to go with them until Marie falls off and he must bring her back. Back at home, Madame is very worried and Edgar is very proud of his headline-making catnap. However, he realizes his belongings are still out in the countryside where the dogs chased him off. He goes to retrieve the basket and sidecar to his motorcycle, but he must fight the hounds to get them back. O'Malley, Duchess, and her kittens make it back to Paris and stop for the night at his pad where his friends Scat Cat and bandmates are playing music. Duchess and her kittens dance and have a great time and would like to stay with O'Malley, but realize they must get back to Madame Bonfamy. O'Malley brings them home the next morning, and before they can even get to Madame, Edgar captures them again and hides them in the stove. Roquefort sees everything and bravely goes to round up O'Malley and the rest of the alley cats to help save Duchess and her kittens before Edgar can ship them off to Timbuktu. O'Malley and Roquefort save the day, and with the help of the alley cats, they ship Edgar off to Timbuktu instead. Madame Bonfamy takes in O'Malley and changes her will again to turn her estate into a cat rescue because everybody wants to be a cat. Do they? We're going to answer that question later on. I'm more of a dog person myself, to be honest. Yeah. Sorry, cat people. All right. Um, speaking of cats, because we're going to talk about them a lot here, I want to go right to the open of this film. Yes. I love the opening credits here. Me too. I think they're like some of the best in Disney history, even though it's just recycled animation and it's what we're going to see in the movie. I just love this sequence. I love it. I love that it's basically, yes, it is recycled animation, but it's basically just the sketches. You get the title track for the film in the opening credits, which you don't see all that often. And I don't know. There's just something about, I, I can't put my finger on it, but there's just something about it that I love. I think because it is so different and so unique from a lot of other opens that we saw. And actually, if you think about Robin Hood, which came after this, um, they kind of did the same thing with a little bit of recycled animation. And you really just have the cast of characters walking and running through the screen to open the movie. Yeah, I was going to say the same. If there's a comp, I think it would have to be Robin Hood. Although th they did that a little bit differently because they credit each character. Right. And I feel like you see a bit more of the story play out and it sort of leads you to what you're going to see. This, it's literally just the scenes. They do the, the cute trick where they change aristocrats to cats I always thought that was a nice touch. But I think what really puts it over the top is probably the song. Right. And we'll talk about the music in a little while here. Getting into the actual film itself, though, from the opening scene, I think the animation is beautiful. And you would have thought that because this was the first film they did without Walt Disney, that this would have been a little more contemporary, maybe a little more avant-garde, because they tried that with 101 Dalmatians. We told you we were going to compare it a lot. And he hated it. Right. He hated the sloppy edges. He hated the colors that bled over the lines. So you, you would think that maybe they would have kind of spread their creative wings a little bit without him there, but I guess they tried to stay more traditional perhaps because it was the first one without him. But I, I don't think it's to the film's detriment because I think the setting is beautiful. I think the animation, this is some of the best animation we've seen in a Disney film. Right. And I feel like it works in 101 Dalmatians. It works here because you're setting it so specifically in a city. It's not something like Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty, which 
people have argued that they take France take place in France as well. But you'd never know because it's just the countryside. Right. So you do have a little bit more freedom there here because it's a place that we actually know. I think it's probably a lot easier on the animators to do that sort of stylistic background. That way they don't have to necessarily do everything perfect. But I think it's kind of interesting that they stuck with it. I mean, it, it, it definitely works, but I feel like it's such a... It, it's almost a, a knock against Disney that he didn't like the style, and then he passed, and they were like, all right, we're going to roll with this again. Right. So... You get Madame, you get Edgar. You mean Lady Tremaine? Yeah. Nice well, Lady talk, Tremaine? Yeah, but let's <laughs> talk about that for a second. Her face, her facial features are outstanding. They really are. They're a lot softer than Lady Tremaine's. She's not as angular, and they, they aged her amazing. Yeah, they did. She just looks like a kindly old lady. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I feel like a lot of what we're going to discuss today is really just kind of based on character and animation and a little bit of music because so much of this is so similar to 101 Dalmatians. And seeing as we already did the live action and the animated version, I feel like we're kind of just going to sit here and repeat ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Like if people wanted to hear us talk about it, you could go listen to the reviews of that, of those two films. It's... I'm surprised, and I think this, I said we were going to start unwrapping why this kind of, this kind of becomes a forgettable movie. Um, like you said, it's not one that goes to the front of your mind when you go, I'm going to sit and watch a Disney film. I think a lot of people kind of have that. I'm surprised that this doesn't get called out for just being the cat version of 101 Dalmatians. Right, because even as I'm reading the plot back to myself, there there was a brief moment where I'm like, does this even make sense? Because it's just sort of scenes jammed together. I mean, there's definitely a beginning, a middle, and an end. It tells a complete story. But it just doesn't... Th there's no transitions between the scenes. They, it's just this happens, really and then thread. this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. It's not smooth. It's a little clunky. Right. And... I feel like that's where you revisit this because it's a fun movie mm -hmm. and it looks really cool, but not because it's like, wow, I'm going to sit here and, and let this amazing story play out. And I'm going to be so immersed in this, in this wonderful tale. Right. Well, and that's the exact thing. I think what keeps you coming back for this movie albeit it might be 20 years, like in was in my case, um, is because it is it is fun, right? And it's really at the root of it. That's that's what it's got going for it, is the fun factor, more than it being a mind-blowing experience. It's not a 101 Dalmatians. It's not a Jungle Book. It's not even something as, as recent as it's not a, a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or a Swiss Family Robinson or a Mary Poppins, right? This It kind of just is what it is. And I'm kind of I'm surprised that we're getting into it this early, but I, 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 I don't think we can sit here for an hour and not address this, and then kind of circle back around to yeah, well, it's just kind of fun, you know. It's it's just not there, there's no way for us to stretch it out in any other way, right? Right. So, okay, so you get you get your introduction to these characters, like we said, the animation is beautiful, 
Um, but what I like that they do right away is they what they do successfully is the while it it is kind of this happens and then this happens and it doesn't flow as much it's clunky in that aspect but the pacing of the movie isn't bad and they get right they waste no time getting right into okay here are our characters here's what we're doing the butler's a cheat and he's going right for it so it puts you right into the action it doesn't waste time dragging anything out what I feel like they did balance well and what is a really smooth transition is when they go from human to cat. Because normally in a film like this where the animals can talk, you establish something like Lady in the Tramp, for example. Um, they put us in with Jim Deere and Darling and it's not until Lady, in, it's not until the time jump really, six months later, that we get to meet Lady as a character. Here... Madame Bonfemi gets out of the gets out of her carriage. She has a little interaction with Edgar, and then we see Duchess start talking right away. Right, and it's it's very much unlike One Hundred and One Dalmatians in that regard because we start with Pongo narrating, which I love. That's yeah. that's forever one of my favorite intros to a character. Um, but I thought that was interesting that we see Duchess speak right away, and it's it's not until the humans have to leave where then they'll start talking. Mm-hmm. So you get Edgar, he's a sneak, you see it when he's listening in, and he's got that system set up where he has the pipe that goes from her room into his, so he can listen to her and he can spy on her. I think his motivation is a great jumping off point for the movie, but it's flawed at the same time, because, listen, you'd have no movie otherwise, but why... He didn't wait until she passed away to get rid of the cats. I don't understand. Why Why did he need to do it at that moment? Well, they do take the time to have him do the math on it. And the math is wrong because yeah. he's factoring it. You know, it's very comical. He's factoring in the nine lives of a cat. And then he's like, if Duchess has kittens or more kittens and then the kittens have kittens. He's like, they're all going to outlive me. But what I don't really love about the setup is that somebody's got to take care of all these cats. So regardless, you're still going to get the mansion. Right. You still have a place to live. You're still going to be sitting pretty. All you got to do is feed the cats and clean the litter box. Exactly. There's not much more to it than that. So I, I don't understand why you felt the need to actually take them out. So that they could be, you know, crossed off the piece of paper and then you would just get everything. You're getting everything anyway. But even if he's going to do that, why wouldn't he just wait until Madame is gone? Why why would he need to do it? Coincidentally, she changes her will and the next day the cats are gone. It it is it's a good motivation, but it's a flawed execution. Right, because she would never know. And then you don't have to hurt her like this. I feel like this might have been better served if we had some sort of a sense of urgency. Like if if maybe she was sick or something and that's right. why she called George over to change her change the will on short notice. I do want to dial back and talk about George a little bit. Okay. I feel like George is one of the most underrated characters in Disney history because he has such little screen time but so much development. And He's so whimsical the way he's like, no, nah, I'm not going to tell take the elevator. I'm going to walk up the stairs. And he clearly can't do it. Um, I just think it's such a fun little scene just getting him into the house. And 
I couldn't find if if this is definite, but I feel like he had to be a product of Ollie Johnson. Yeah, and I I love his lines. First off, he's just an old codger anyway, but I love how he's trying to get up the stairs and he can't. And he's like, I'm not as spry as I was at 80. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he's he's just good comic relief. Um, and, I mean, you do get plenty of comic relief in this movie, but I feel like when it comes to most of the belly laughs, it's between him and the hounds. Yes. Right? Um so and because the thing is, this is this is a huge cast. Like there are a lot of characters in this movie. I mean, within the first two minutes, you're introduced to the four cats, Fru Fru the horse, the horse, George, Madame, Edgar, and Rockfort or Roguefort. Um it's hard. I, it's hard for me to figure out if it's Rockford or Roguefort because of the way that Ava Gabor says it. Um, yeah, she's a Roguefort. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you get nine characters in the first five minutes. Yeah, That's a lot for any animated film. I kept the plot very simple because Fru-Fru does have a little bit of a bigger role. and We're going to talk about that. But it, it is a huge cast. And then once you get to O'Malley and, he's, and his buddies, it doubles. Yeah. And you don't see O'Malley for a little while. I right. mean, he is he's one of the last characters that gets introduced in this movie, which is astonishing because he carries such a huge pivotal role in the movie. Right. So let's let's get to right around the time where we do right before we get introduced to O'Malley. I want to talk about the scene where George gets on his little motorcycle and he he takes the cats. Edgar. Edgar, what, who, what did I say? George. George, okay. Edgar gets on, on the Same motorcycle. Thing. It's two janky cars, which yes. also pulls from 101 Dalmatians. Yeah, you think? Um, he, he goes out to the countryside to ditch the cats. I love the scene with him and the two hounds. It's hysterical. Napoleon and Lafayette. Those are the two dogs. Gee, I wonder who they were named for. Yeah. Really, um, <laughs> a lot of French pride in this movie. Yeah, but they are just hysterical, and I love the slapstick here when they go after him. They're biting him. They're trying to knock him off the motorcycle because they're trying to just protect their land. They're trying to stop him, and I don't think they really know why they're trying to stop him. I mean, do you really even need that much of a reason? No. They're hounds, and then no, you don't. Napoleon has this Napoleonic complex of. I'm the leader and we're going to do what I say. Um, Yeah, I think this chase is, again, one of the most underrated scenes in the canon. When they chase Edgar under the bridge and the motorcycle is doing loop-de-loops on top of the bridge and then it goes underwater and he's just doing circles, it... That scene is so much fun. I love the animation. I love that... I feel like here, where it is similar to 101 Dalmatians, this was a complete departure because it's so much more whimsical. Like in 101 Dalmatians, you get the comic relief with Horace and Jasper, but it's more just because... They're bumbling fools. Exactly. This is more slapstick. Exactly. And I I like that where this film is so much fun, and I think what does keep you coming back to it 
is the whimsy and because they they just went full throttle with the sight gags. You right. don't see that a lot. You're not going to see this in Cinderella. No. And so you have this really funny scene and then the basket gets tossed and and you think okay, that's that's rough to watch. But the next scene with Madame, it is heart-wrenching. When she wakes up and she realizes that they're gone, her reaction, the music, the way it's animated, it all comes together in this very, very, very heartbreaking scene. To the point where she kind of, she's so endearing that she's, I'm going to say it, she's like the only tolerable cat lady that ever existed. (laughs) But this scene really, if you weren't sold on her before, I think this scene really puts it over the top. I agree with you for the most part. I do think that she jumped to the conclusion that they were gone a little too fast. Um, I would have liked a little bit more build up to it where she actually searches her giant mansion and realizes that they're not there. I think it just plays too much to the hand of we know that they're kidnapped and she meets us too quickly. You know, there's no realization. I mean, she checks the bed. Yes, sure. But her house is gigantic. They could be anywhere. Yeah, she jumps to the conclusion of they're missing before she runs downstairs to see that they could be in the kitchen eating creme de la creme. Exactly. Or that Edgar's taking care of them or, you know, whatever. Um, which I do want to... We haven't really talked about her mansion yet. It's beautiful. I I love the set, but particularly in this scene, even though she has the cats and there's so much personality in the house and there's so much life in the house normally and she has Edgar here's where you realize that she is completely alone she's an older woman and she's completely by herself even though she does have Edgar there it's not quite the same and you just feel the emptiness and the void without the cats and what I really love is that on the other end of it Duchess is more worried about her being alone than she is about her predicament with her children right because she immediately goes to, it's not woe is me, it's not what are we going to do, it's Madame is going to be so worried about us. Yes. And then you get the introduction of Thomas O'Malley. And he's voiced by Phil Harris. So, here's the thing. Phil Harris, to me, is all of his characters. Yes. And I, and I don't mean that as a knock against him, because I think he's great. He is Baloo. He's great as Little John. He's really good in this role because he gives so much life and so much swagger and so much of himself to these roles. And Little John, to me, other than being a reanimated Baloo, because that's really all that he is, and it's the same voice actor, there's enough difference between the two of them. This is just Baloo the cat. And I try not to let that ruin anything, but it's just so difficult to get past that in his introduction. As fun as it is, he's got a great song. You still love him, but you love him because you love Blue. I don't love Thomas O'Malley because I love Thomas O'Malley. It's just I'm getting more Blue. Does that make sense? It definitely does. I think it has to do with you know, the way that he saunters in and we learn immediately that he's on his own and he says, bachelor. Exactly. It is really the same thing. 
But that's not to say that Phil Harris is a one-trick pony. And could you really picture O'Malley any other way? I kind of can't. So I'll look past it. I kind of feel like if we're going to compare him to anything, it's almost like a modern-day Josh Gad. Josh Gad is in everything now. Disney loves him. But there's a reason you keep going back to him. Yeah, but Olaf isn't the same as LeFou, isn't the same as the guy um, that narrates the Animal Kingdom show. You know what I'm saying? Correct, but at the same time, Josh Gad puts so much of himself into those roles where he's influencing his characters, as different as the characters feel, it's sort of the same concept. I think that once they realized that O'Malley was going to be this swinging bachelor, that they they were probably like, okay, we have to get Phil Harrison. And I, I believe Disney actually made that call himself. And I'm sure that they basically wrote, once they knew they had him, they wrote the character for him. And they, they modeled the uh, the facial expressions off of him as well. Right. And I was, it, I'm glad you brought that up because this is some of the best animation in the film. Yes. I think. When he does have his intro, the way that he moves, the way that his face does move, but just his body language in general just like Baloo. <laughs> it's it but it works. It works in cat form. It's the stray cat strut. But it's what's really funny, it works when O'Malley's doing it and he's kind of like bouncing along, but then when Toulouse starts to imitate him, it calls to it, which is really funny. This is what saves it all for me is the fact that he has no idea that the kids are there, that the kittens are there, and he's he's putting the moves on on Duchess. And he's being overly cheesy. We're going to fly to Paris on a magic Your carpet. Your eyes are like sapphires. And the kids are like, did you hear? We're going to fly on a magic carpet. <laughs> and they start repeating everything to him, literally. And I love the comedy here. I love the animation. I love how his body language and his face, how everything changes in him, and how... Duchess is basically like, well, yeah, you did say all those things. I love everything about this. And I love that it becomes sort of an ongoing gag because it happens later in the movie where um, when when it becomes clear that they're going to end up together or at least they want to, he he said something to her about, are you applying for the job? Meaning, are you are you going to be with me? Yes. And, yeah, and, yeah. and they're like, did you hear mom's going to work for Mr. <laughs> Mr. O'Malley? It's. I love that it, that they keep coming back to it, but it's not beaten over the head. It's just subtle enough where it doesn't lose the funny. No, and it's it's the humor. It's a, it's great for the character moment all around with the kids just taking it at the most innocent face value level and O'Malley sort of putting it out there, but he's not really being clear with his words and he's not going to show his full hand. And what I love too about this scene is that Duchess does a really good job of playing both sides Yes, because she's ready to go along with him. She knows that she needs to get back to Paris. She's definitely flirting right back. But then when it comes to her kids, she knows that he doesn't really want to take them along and she sort of manipulates it into getting him to still help them anyway. Right. As we move on here, am I the only one that thought 
because again, I hadn't seen this movie in a long time because a lot of this movie takes place in them trying to get back to Paris. Yes. Right? From the moment he looks like a crazed animal and he stops that truck and he sneaks them on the back of it. So much of this movie is rooted in the journey back. When they start walking down the railroad tracks, when they go, let's let's play train, am I the only one that said, oh, this is going to turn into Stand By Me real fast? <laughs> I didn't immediately think Stand By Me, but I certainly thought that it was not a good idea. Yeah, and guess what? As soon as that thought entered my mind, here comes the oncoming train. Of course. Right? And he ends up getting... Uh, washed into well he jumps off the bridge to save one of the kittens who fell off right and he ends up getting washed downstream and that's where we get introduced to the geese i could live without that whole sequence the best thing about them is the music that plays while they walk it is too perfect it is very funny but i just i can't stand these busybody Geese. They may as well have been named Karen. Well, I mean, what was unclear about him saying, I'm trying to get to shore? Like, he's he's struggling to get... They go, oh, you're struggling to swim. And he's like, I'm just trying to get to the shore. And they're basically, nope, we're going to teach you how to swim and we send you downstream. Right. What was so unclear about that? No, And they just, they just don't want to hear it. Any of it. Yeah. Even once he gets to shore and then... They they start being all judgy once they find out that he's not with Duchess. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you need the train for a little bit of danger, a little bit more of the adventure. But I hate that that's what drives them here because I feel like we don't need these two characters at all. I don't feel like they do anything for the story. On the other end of that, though... I think we need Uncle Waldo in every single movie. Oh, yeah. Marinated in white wine. (laughs) More of him, please. He's hysterical. He's what makes dealing with them tolerable. Right, because without them, you don't get to him. Right. I mean, could he just be a character that you meet at random? Yeah, but I feel like if that were the case, it would just be too random. And a lot of things just happen in this movie. We talked about that already. I don't know. I mean, once they get back into the city, he knows he's going to take them back to his pad. So maybe you could have planted Uncle Waldo as a little bit of a distractor. But would we care about him? True. You know, it would be completely unmotivated. It would just be another thing that happens. And I think that's it because the Karens are... I keep calling them the Karens. For obvious reasons, it's (laughs) Abigail and... Amelia? Yeah, I think so. I think um, the build-up to get to him, because they're building him up as this wonderful person, and then you meet him, and I mean, that's not to say that he's not wonderful. He's just not what you think you're getting. Yeah, exactly. And then we get to the pad, right? And you got Scat Cat is there with his group of alley cats. Okay. I I don't know why... This 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 whole scene, it's fun. This is where you get that really like avant-garde sort of animation because during the musical number, they like you just keep getting these flashes of color that kind of like 
wash over the screen. I don't. I'm not explaining this well at all, but it, it's almost like they put a fi- here, kids. It they put a filter <laughs> on it, but it but like the filter keeps flickering, and it's just sort of strange. I think this is where Walt would have been like, no, I don't want any of that. Well, they do. They do call to it because one of the kittens. I think it's Berlio. It might have been Toulouse. I don't remember. One of them gets up and and pulls on the chain of a Tiffany lamp. So do I think that that's what's going to happen? That a Tiffany lamp swinging and and the colors getting hit is going to create this discotheque effect? No, absolutely not. Um, I disagree with you, though. I feel like the entire movie drives to this sequence. I mean, obviously, the song is the big takeaway, which we're going to we're going to get to. But I feel like this is such a fun sequence. It To me, it's the standout the same way that um, when they make fun of uh, of Prince John in Robin Hood. So, yeah, that's like my favorite number. And it, it it's building towards that. And I feel like this is the exact same way. So. I love that you brought that up because as I was watching it, I thought the same thing. The phony king of England. Yes. Yes. I couldn't think of the name of it. I'm so glad you brought that up because as I'm watching this movie, that was the exact thing that I thought about. And I thought to myself, because that that scene is guilty of reanimating this movie like shot for shot. They're the exact same scene with a different song playing over it. Well, we talked about that when we reviewed Robin Hood was that because of the budgetary constraints, they recycled Blue into Little John and they recycled a lot of the dance sequence. Yeah, Duchess is made Marion. Yeah, which is what I realized. That was when I first realized it was happening. I was like, I've seen this before. And then I realized it was it was Duchess because the, the shape of the fox face and the cat whiskers coming out the side. It's really the exact same. It is. And I remember thinking, as I watched this the other day, they did it better in Robin Hood. Robin Hood copied this and did it better. But I think that's... Wow, the that's s- a bold statement. Uh, I don't think it is. But uh, that's really more a con- that, that's more a conversation of the song, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But I, I don't know. This, like, does it... The, you're right. The movie drives to this scene, and it's the scene is fun. It's fine. I like Scat Cat and his group of of buddies i think they're well animated but i i don't know this this always kind of just fell flat for me because Ow. i just i don't think everybody wants to be a cat <laughs> you know what i'm saying like and i always had i had cats when i was when i was a kid and i had dogs and i kind of always just been a dog person so maybe i'm well, you're also highly allergic now yeah so maybe i'm just predisposed to being like no no everybody doesn't want to be a cat but <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't. The whole scene just doesn't doesn't do anything for me. I think for me, it's because everybody wants to be a cat was part of a Disney sing along, and I knew it from there first before we had seen the movie. So then, once we sat down to actually watch the movie, I was just anticipating this number the whole time. But I think it's fun, and for me, I think one of the best animation sequences. I'd I'd put it up against anything just as far as a fun sight gag is at the end when they're all on the piano and they're just like stomping on it and then it starts falling through the floors like an elevator. 
I love that. I think it's so funny. Mm. And and I think it speaks to the characters too because they don't care. All their instruments are broken and then they take the party out on the street. Yeah. I think I would have liked to have spent more time with them. Um, Like as far as the story goes, they don't really need to have a big interaction with Duchess and the kids because the whole point is that you know, Duchess proves that she can kind of get off the high horse and give up the lifestyle to be with O'Malley, and she's willing to do it, if not for Madame. But um, I feel like I would have just liked to live in that world a little bit longer and spent more time with Scat Cat, whether whether it's that maybe Duchess and the kittens left and then O'Malley goes back to them and, and we see a scene where they're hanging out and... O'Malley starts to miss Duchess a little bit. And, you know, the fact that we only get them back at the end when Rockford has to go and and round them up to help. Um, I just would have liked to see a little bit more of them. Right. Like they do that in Lady and the Tramp with the street dogs. You Ex- know, the whole gaggle of them. Exactly. Exactly. And I think because they bother, you know, we're talking about using Paris to serve the story. Um, I'm not really sure where the jazz connection comes in there. Um, but I also can't see Scat Cat playing any other kind of music. Well, he wouldn't be called Scat Cat then, right? Right. It it would be completely different. But I didn't think O'Malley was going to take them to an opera house, you know? So I, I think I just would have liked to see, like, the the Paris underbelly a little bit more, I guess. Yeah. Um there's there's a lot to discuss about the music um but we're almost there we're almost there um we did jump ahead a little bit because yeah. in between and that's where it's like there's no smooth transitions yeah we get edgar doubling back for his stuff oh yeah his hat and his umbrella exactly and the sidecar right the entire sidecar was left there left at the scene of the crime <laughs> um I don't feel as as fun as it is. I feel like we didn't need it. This is where it's like, okay, you were doing two of these to be part of the wonderful world of Disney. This feels every bit that they put this scene in just to stretch it out to feature length. But I yeah. don't want to. It's basically just the same scene with the hounds again. I'm back. You attack me. And I'm foiled. Right, but that's what I'm saying. I don't want to poo-poo on it because, to me, this is one of the best scenes. It's unmotivated as far as the story goes, but when Edgar keeps ducking back into the haystack and just, you know, the two hounds are sleeping up against the haystack and he's reaching out and grabbing his stuff back. Right. That is a sight gag that could only be achieved through animation. If you think about it, I'm watching this and I was like, this is just so... Funny, because if if they tried to do something like this with live action, the haystack is going to collapse on itself. It's not going to keep its form, so he doesn't have that option to keep popping out of the top or out of the side. And I, I just thought it was so funny. So even though it's unmotivated, I just I like that we got more time with them, with the hounds, because them as a foil to Edgar is is very funny. But I feel like as far as the story goes, you didn't need this scene, but you could have developed O'Malley's relationship with Scat Cat a little bit more. Agreed. All right, let's move towards the end of the movie here. 
you're building up to this end. He throws the cats in an oven. Terrible. Terrible. The oven's not on. Don't worry. Um, he throws <laughs> them in there, and he's getting ready to ship them off to Timbuktu. And O'Malley sends Roguefort to go get the alley cats. He has a very funny interaction with them where they basically give him, you know, he can't. Then they, they're they playing with him, and they know that they are because he can't remember O'Malley's name. So he's throwing every Irish name, every O-everything uh, at O'Brien, them. O'Brien, O'Grady. Yeah, and they know who he's talking about, but they're basically scaring him, giving him one strike, two strike, strike three, it's over. Um, it, it is a funny scene. I do like that they bring them in to help. And I just love the irony that a mouse has to go get them. Yeah, I love that irony. I what I my my biggest laugh in this scene comes from when Roguefort is trying to listen into the yes. the the combination lock so that he can get the cats out because now uh, Edgar has thrown them in the trunk to go to Timbuktu and he just screams quiet and everybody freezes for long enough so that he can pick the lock and he's like okay thank you and then they get back to fighting. It's very funny, but what sort of baffles me is that he's small enough where he just should have been able to pick it without having to break the combination. I mean, you can't pick it if there's no key to pick. So he would have to listen for a combination. I, you know what I'm thinking of? Is Jiminy Cricket goes and he crawls into the lock and he's able to spring it for Pinocchio. But that's also a cricket. It's a cricket. It's smaller, <clears throat> and he's got a keyhole to go in. There's no keyhole in a combination lock. On the bottom. No. Yeah. There, there's no keyhole on a combination lock. It's like an lock. emergency failsafe. No, it isn't. That hole is there so that moisture can leak out so the inside doesn't rust and get stuck permanently. People think it's a pick, but that's not what it actually is. But even still, if it was, a mouse can't fit in it. All right, I'll give you that one. But the whole thing, we are overanalyzing this. <laughs> it's a funny scene. That's my point. Yeah, we're getting stuck on the combination lock, and yet a team of alley cats worked with a horse <laughs> to then get a full-grown man into, into the a trunk. trunk to send to Timbuktu, and we have no problem with any of that. Because it's well done. It's whimsical. It is. like. All of the setups, and I, I feel like, I, I said it before, this is a complete departure from 101 Dalmatians. 101 Dalmatians is whimsical because you're just animating the dogs over and over and over again. And the dogs, the puppies are so much fun. But you don't get the same, just because there's so many, you can't do this. Yeah. Here they spent a lot more time putting their characters in really, really funny situations. And I can't. I can't really think of another movie that does anything like the the closest I can get off the top of my head is like is Ka with the coils. Yeah. The the and what I like about this scene is it's kind of a Disney snatching grab, but yes. sometimes they go sometimes those scenes get dragged on for way too long because they're really trying to play up on the funny and the silly. This doesn't do that. It's a pretty quick ending. But it didn't need to be any shorter, nor did it need to be any longer. I feel like it was paced very well. Right. And then you get the little scene to sort of button it up where they've taken in O'Malley and Madame changes her will again uh, 
to to open up a cat rescue, which is a lot more fitting. It, it, it totally makes sense for, you know, her being a cat lover and, you know, her money's going to be put to good use. Yeah. What I don't like is that they don't really... And I mean, I guess she's never going to know, but it doesn't really, she never finds out what Edgar did. She just writes it off as that he left and then they write him back out of the will. Right. So there's no punishment. Although, okay, he's, he's in he's a in trunk a traveling to Timbuktu on a janky moving truck. Um, and then it just ends. They're playing music. They, they cut to Scat Cat and his guys you know playing music in the house and then it's like okay this is the end and it's announced it's just such a clunky ending it is but i don't think it needed to i don't think you needed to see anything else i don't think we needed to see any more no but i didn't need it announced either i yes like i would have been okay where it's sort of like madame bonfamille lets her hair down a little bit and she's jamming with the alley cats mm-hmm. instead of just sitting there, you know, in her dress with Duchess on a pillow petting her. Yeah. I would have been okay. And then you, you could have just like zoomed out of the window and showed everybody having fun. Yeah. Like the Dalmatian plantation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do you have anything else to add on the plot or the story or the script here before we move on to characters? I do not. Okay. So let's start with the characters here. We'll lead off with Duchess. Said it before. Ava Gabor. Perfect casting. Perfect casting. This is a great character. Yes. Because she is maternal towards her children, but you pointed out before, also very concerned about, um, you know, about their their owner, Madame. Um, but she does play both sides. And that's the thing. Like, she's not one of these overly guarded characters who's like slowly giving in to O'Malley and then pulling back. Like, you've seen that done a hundred times. Right, right. I like that she kind of, she, for someone who's so refined, she very much is go with the flow. I think it's also because she's very smart and she knows this is what she needs to do to keep herself and her kittens safe. But what makes her likable is that. You know, she obviously enjoys her pampered lifestyle, but she doesn't come off as spoiled. And I think that comes through because she wants to teach the kids culture. And she, you know, immediately when we meet her and um, the kittens are are climbing all over Fru-Fru on the ride, she she says, make sure you thank Fru-Fru, you know, and she's trying to make sure that her kids don't grow up to just take all this stuff for granted. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the second they're removed from the home, they are so worried about Madame is because they realize how good that they do have it with her. Yeah. Thomas O'Malley, the Irish cat in France. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's fun. It's blue. Uh, what else do you want? It's blue. I buy that, though, because he does seem he, he you want to talk about go with the flow. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's so noncommittal. I believe that he's traveled around a bit, you know? Yeah. Madame Bonfamy. 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 Means good I don't, family. Yeah, I don't speak French. Um, <laughs> so uh, me trying to do a French accent, it's, re- it's, it's horrific, so I'm not even going to try. She is, she's just so sweet. Yeah. Right? I mean, we talked about it before. I think that they, I think they developed her well. I think 
of all of the characters, I think she does have the fullest character arc when it comes to the end of the film and the way that she does give the home to those cats because you know that Thomas O'Malley's going to end up with them. Of course. All right. Tramp did it. It, it. it is formulaic. A lot of this is formulaic. But I think for her to give the house up for these alley cats and to give them a place to go, she has the fullest story of anybody, I think. I'm actually going to disagree with you there because when I was reading up on you know, some of the history of the film, it mentions her as a retired opera singer. And I was like, where is this? I mean, I appreciate that they they gave that backstory so you find out where all of her money came from and that she's not just some widow that's sitting on her husband's money. But I would have liked to, to seen that explored a lot more, especially because they did cut a song of hers. They cut so the she's qu- supposed to be an opera singer. Let her sing. They cut quite a bit of music. It would have made sense if she would have been giving the musical lessons to the kittens. Yes. It works that um, that Duchess is doing it, but it would have worked just as well, if not more, if you would have seen that. And it would have fleshed the character out a little bit. Right, more. right. George, the crazy old conjury, walks in. He's an attorney. Okay, who do you want to sue today? I love everything <laughs> about George. Again, you know, instead of that haystack scene and and spending time, I mean, I guess you had to villainize Edgar a little bit more, and that's why they gave him the second scene with Napoleon and Lafayette. I would have been totally okay with more George. Yeah. Speaking of Edgar, I said he's got the right motivation. I think his planning is a little bit flawed, but I like him. He's not... He's not inherently evil like Cruella DeVille. Right. But when he when he does accomplish his goal and he pulls it off and he's like so whimsical about it and he's so it's such a stupid term, but he's so animated. <laughs> of course he is, but you know what I'm saying. He's just so overjoyed. It reminds me a lot of Captain Hook, actually. A character we haven't spoken about on this show yet, but I see a lot of Captain Hook in him. I, I kind of see where you're coming from with that. Yeah. What I like, too, is that he is very unsuspect, unsuspecting. I mean, of course, at the end, it's like, oh, the butler did it. Just yeah. like Clue. But, you know, it's in the first two minutes of the movie, he's so polite. Let me help you with your package. Let me feed the kittens. You know, you can tell that he's got an equal part in pampering them and he genuinely seems to care for them. So I'm not saying it's like some shocking twist when we find out that he he's the villain. Right. But just the way that they're going about setting up this movie, you certainly don't suspect him from the beginning. And it's not like, I mean, no villain is as obvious as Cruella, obviously. And she's so over the top, and that's why you love her. But you don't have somebody like that. You don't have somebody as easily identifiable as the dog catcher and Lady in the Tramp, who's obviously the villain. Um, So I think that's what really sets this movie apart and makes it very different from its two closest comps. Yeah. Uh, Toulouse. This is the oldest of the children, the oldest of the kittens. He is the one that loves O'Malley. He loves the idea of being an alley cat. I, I just love his little spunkiness. I do, too. And I love that he, he does that growl and he spits and hisses. It's so cute. Yeah. 
Uh, Berlioz and Marie, to me, they're kind of just the same thing. Um, you got the middle and the youngest of the kittens. Both of them are trying to be prim and proper. They want to be aristocrats or aristocats, as it were. I don't think they really understand why Toulouse is obsessed with alley cats or why he'd even want to be one. Um, they work. I like their bickering. It's fun. Um, it doesn't really get too drawn out. Uh, like I said, I think where they're best, best served is taking what O'Malley says way too literally. I love Marie. I think she's such a fun character. She is every bit buying into the pampered princess lifestyle that is laid out in front of her. And I, I love that she can't wait to grow up and she wants to be treated like a lady and treated like her mother. Um, but I also think that she's a great character. Like, could you have done this with two kittens? Yes. But Marie is really the driving force to keep O'Malley in the picture because she's the damsel in distress. And I think it's, it's very interesting the dynamic with her mother because Duchess can totally fend for herself. It's Marie that sort of keeps foiling, getting them home easily. Right. Um, Scat Cat. Voiced by, you guessed it, Scatman Crothers. He's fun. I don't, I don't know what else to say. He's fun. He's great. I kind of feel bad for Scatman Crothers because <laughs> they tried to get Louis Armstrong for this. And when they couldn't, I think there was like a scheduling conflict or something. When they couldn't, they told Scatman to do it like Louis Armstrong. That, like, what a burn. That is like getting Seth Rogen onto a film and say, but I want you to act like John Candy. It, you know what I'm saying? It's such the, the point that you got him because he was a name and you named the character Scat Cat. Right. But we don't want him to be like you. It's it's very insulting. It yeah, it really is. But I do love Scat Cat and and his band. I th I love that they each have such a different personality and they each come from a different culture. Like that's why you said before, the Irish cat who ended up in France, they're all they all have a thick accent. They're coming from all different places. So I kind of like that they took the alley cat idea one step further and made it this ragtag bunch of of well-traveled cats. Yes. And Roquefort, the mouse. Sterling Holloway. What else What else more? do you need? He gives him so much life. He's a great sidekick. You know, I he really is a really solid kind of background character. He is truly an unsung hero because when we first meet him, you know, I think it's it's kind of funny, the irony that he's not afraid to roll out his cracker and share some dinner. So you realize he's he doesn't have your typical cat and mouse relationship. Um, and we talked about loving the irony that he has to go and save the day. But even before that, when he realized Duchess is missing, he's like he's looking out the window and he's like anything could happen to them in this horrible weather. So he puts on his raincoat and then he goes out into the horrible weather and he's, you know, even smaller and, and more susceptible to danger than they are, but he still does it anyway. I I think that he's, you know, he's as strong a character as as like Timothy Mouse in Dumbo, but he doesn't get enough side sidekick credit because right. where Timothy teaches Dumbo to fly, 
Rockford steps in and rescues them, but he's not looked at as that same right-hand mouse. Moving on to music. There is a lot to unpack here. I mean, considering I think there's only like four songs in the movie. So, it okay, so there's a little bit of scandal here. There's, there's a little bit of controversy. This was the last film that the Sherman brothers worked on as staff members at the Disney studio. They did write music for Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, and they did write music for the Tigger movie, but by that point, they were no longer staff of the company. They were just contracted out. Correct. Because they had kind of become disillusioned with a lot of the creative ideas that were coming out after Walt had passed away. Interesting. And that kind of comes to the, to a head here a little bit because a lot of the music they wrote for this movie ended up getting cut. Right. Of the four songs in this movie, only two of them belong to the Sherman Brothers. And of the other two, they were songs that were written by other people that were attempts at sounding like the Sherman Brothers, which I thought was sort of interesting. It's funny that you bring that up because I never, like I said, there was a gap between watching this as a kid and watching it now. And it's not until, you know, we started doing this show and I I really like took the time to learn more about the Sherman Brothers and their music has become so much more easily identifiable to me now that we're watching the opening credits and I'm kicking myself and I was like, oh, this is Sherman Brothers. I never realized they were Aristocats too. And and it's so obvious to me. But I guess maybe it shouldn't have been so obvious if now you're telling me that they, they were trying to mimic their sound. Right. So the opening title song, The Aristocats, that was them. That was the Sherman Brothers. They brought Maurice Chevalier out of retirement to sing the song. I love that. Uh, and I love the song. I think this is just a very fun song. And I think that it's a fun way of setting up the movie. Absolutely. I And, you know, we talked about it before with the credits. I think this is what makes those opening credits so fun. It just... It, it really is the perfect intro. It's an upbeat tune. Um, I love the the blend of French and English. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's it's such a great hook. Yeah, it, and it's, it's a nice table setter for what you're about to see over yes. the next 90 minutes. Scales and Arpeggios is such a Sherman Brothers song. Absolutely. I love the whole idea of this sequence, though. I love that, you know, we touched on it before, that Duchess is trying to expose her kids to some culture so they don't grow up spoiled. I love the concept of Toulouse painting with his four paws. And even though he's making a huge mess, um, it's just so much fun. Uh, And I love that they build off of the scales, Mm -hmm. but they turn it into this, this whole other song. It's, it's so great. Yeah, and it's harmonized very well. I think that this is one of their most forgotten about songs just because they had so many good ones. But I, I think this one 
is so typical of them. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like, you hear it. This is a song you hear and go, yep, Sherman Brothers wrote that. Exactly. I mean, when you if you put it up against something like, let's go fly a kite, does it hold a candle? No. no. But just as far as the making up, like, forcing the rhyme and sort of making up a word to get the song to work that's where it's classic sherman brothers and i think it's it's so perfect for the kittens too i feel like this is where you really get their characters to develop speaking of making up words to fit the rhymes you get that in o'malley the alley cat thomas o'malley's intro very much so Mm -hmm. yeah the sherman brothers didn't write this and it shows yeah it's fun but it's not as witty, and it does lack the charm that a typical Sherman Brothers song has. But it does feel appropriate for Phil Harris. Yes. I feel like they were like, okay, marry the Sherman Brothers and the Bare Necessities, and that's what you get here. Mm-hmm. It works, but you can see... And, and the thing is, because you had the first two songs of the movie were the Sherman Brothers, and then this song is supposed to sound like them, but it's not them. It's a little jagged. Does that make sense? Like, I, it is a, It's very clear that you had a different songwriter when it came to this tune. Yes. I mean, I'm not going to say it stands out like a sore thumb, but... It does feel different from the rest of the movie. I think it's the perfect song for O'Malley, and I think it works for that character. But it does sort of, if you look at the soundtrack, it breaks up the flow. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to be a cat. They had said Disney wanted a showstopper. And so... This is where they went for the showstopper because the Sherman brothers had written a jazz tune that was supposed to be in place of this. I would have loved to have heard that. Yeah, it was Le Jazz something or other. I I don't remember what the title was. It doesn't matter because it got cut. I bet you that had a lot of fun made up words. I'm sure it did. And they felt that this was the show. And this is where the, the butting of the heads came in. They were like, well... That's good, but I think they they had it slowed down a little bit. It wasn't quite as fast-paced as this, and they said, we want a showstopper, and this is what replaced it. And I know this is supposed to be the showstopper, but it's not even the best song in the movie. Right. I mean, I feel like the whole movie does drive to the scene, like I said before, but, yeah, is it one of the most memorable songs? I think it's the most memorable part of this movie. But in the big picture, it's certainly not, you know, it, it's not like your Bella Note where the entire movie just stops and you get lost in that scene. This is fun. It's great. It is a big takeaway. But... I mean, it, the evidence isn't like you don't hear it in the parks a lot. No. If at all, I mean, you might get the music when you go when you go into France and Epcot. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, if anything, you're gonna you're gonna draw fr- more from 
the opening and from scales and arpeggios than this. Right. And that's that's the thing. Like so many Disney movies, if I said if I took three people and brought them into a room separate from each other, or I had them in noise canceling headphones, and I said, first song that comes to mind when I say Little Mermaid. One person is going to say part of your world. One person is going to say under the sea. You know, like there's one person, you know, it, it, they, it could be one of the same. It could be something different. Same thing with Mary Poppins. Give me a song for Mary Poppins. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Okay, what, what's the first song? Oh, let's go fly a kite. Well, it's a feed the of sugar. You know what I'm saying? Like th- there's just so many of them. Here, you're going to say what? And they're going to go, well, the song everybody wants to be it's the song from the movie and it's yeah. like you know there's three other ones right and i don't know that it's a compliment towards this song so much as it is that the other ones just do kind of seem to get buried in the disney catalog and i and i don't think that that's really fair right i think i think part of it is that we needed a little bit more story for the jazz or to have it more if this would have been New Orleans, it would have made sense. Right. Because when you think about something like Princess and the Frog, oh, I mean, that so good. music is just so... Ingra- it is such a part of the story. It's it's what gives it so much life. Um, here, you have a very lively scene, and that's why it stands out, but there's just not a lot of motivation behind it other than okay we're gonna meet O'Malley's friends and they're gonna sort of break Duchess down mm-hmm. a little bit and you know prove that she can hang right um I think it had they leaned into the opera a little bit more and they had developed that as far as Madame Bonfemme maybe shown her at a rehearsal and maybe she's got the cats with her and that's the only sort of music they know they they tiptoe around it a little bit because when Berlioz starts playing the piano he's like this isn't Beethoven but it's groovy or whatever he says right um I feel like if they had played out Madame's backstory a little bit more this would have made more sense yeah like if if the if the kids were slowly coming on to it right Right. And and you could see that they were changing as characters. If they would have it, like worked a little character development into it. Yes. It would have made more sense. Right. But I mean, listen, it is what it is. And, and it's what they went with. It's what it's the movie that we got. Right. And that's the difference from it being a showstopper versus just a music break. It's a great song. It's catchy. It's memorable. But because it doesn't tie the story up, that's what have, what would have put it over the top. Yeah. Uh, final review. You want to go first? You want me to go? You can go. I think the animation's great. I think the characters are fun. I think the music, for the most part, is fun. I think the story is fun. The movie's fine. It's. I mean, it's. It's not an offensive film. It's. It's not a terrible. It's not. It's not the damn Black Cauldron. But. Of all of the animated films that we've reviewed on this show, this one does fall to the bottom of the list. I I can't put this really, other than the Black Cauldron, I, I can't put it above hardly anything. I can't put it above Cinderella, 
Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Aladdin, Lion King. Let's you know what I'm saying? A... Like I can't. I t- this to me, and and it's it's not that the movie's bad, but it's it's just not as good as some of those other ones. The Jungle Book. I mean, come on, Robin Hood. The, and and for, that's the thing with Robin Hood. You know, Robin Hood stole so much animation from this movie, but was a better movie with better characters, a better story, and better music. That it, do you see? This is so strange that they would just re—they basically recycle this movie, and and it was better. It 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 defies logic. However. Robin Hood is a story that's been told a million times. That's an adaptation. You got to give this a little bit more credit for being an original. Let's take it, though, put it up against a movie that you don't really love, which Pete's Dragon comes to mind, which is maybe a little unfair because that is a live action, but you're you're not such a fan of that one. You're, you're putting this as low as Black Cauldron, well, that makes it sound like it's bad. What I'm saying, though, it, it there's just there are so many other strong films. I'd watch this before I'd watch Mulan. I'll put this ahead of Mulan. Animated or live action? Both. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. Pocahontas, same thing. I I know that it's this universally loved film. It doesn't do it for me. I'd watch this before I'd watch that. But the problem is the that for a company that has made so many beautiful, timeless animated films. This, to me, is just another movie. Does that make sense? Like, even, like, I to, I think Goofy Movie is better than this. Goofy Movie is better than a lot of things. I'm just saying, though, like, this, to me, is just another, it's just another movie. It's good, it's fun, but I'm not in any particular rush to watch it again. I feel like that's more about personal taste, though, because I certainly wouldn't call this a bad movie. But if you do put put it up against the comparable ones, like we said, obviously 101 Dalmatians, definitely Lady and the Tramp. I feel like it's closest to those two. It's really if you merge the two, this is what you get. But even if you do take it compared to something like Oliver and Company, too, of out of those four this probably does fall to the bottom. So I'll, I'll certainly give you that, but I wouldn't say that it's a bad movie um, because I think that the animation absolutely stands the test of time. Um, I think that they did a beautiful job of showcasing Paris. Um, I really do like a lot of the characters and I feel like this movie is so different as far as all the sight gags go. I think this is one of the most whimsical films they've ever done, and it doesn't nearly get enough credit for that. That said, story-wise, it's not timeless. It's not one of their best stories. In fact, it draws too much from too many other films to stand out on its own. But because of the characters and because of the music... That's what makes it feel like a classic Disney film. Um, so do I think it holds up? Yeah, for what it is. Do I think it's going to get remade? I hope not. I don't want to see a live action 
They already tried a live action Cats and it didn't work out so well. Yeah. Not Disney. But we don't need to see any CGI fur being placed on a human ever again. No. Uh, So I hope that they don't do that. Uh, If anything, if they were going to maybe do something and remake it in some way, I'd rather see it go like the route of Pixar, especially when you compare, you know, when you look at something like Ratatouille, I think that would be awesome. Mm. But regardless, I don't think the story is strong enough to be worth retelling. If they were going to do something, I think they'd have to do a complete overhaul. Um, which is unfortunate because, you know, if you're digging through Disney Plus and and you show, you, you sit your kid down to watch this, they're not going to be as wowed as they would be by the Dalmatians, by the Jungle Book. So it's just unfortunate because I don't think it represents this era of Disney history the way that those other films do. Yeah. We're interested in knowing what your review of the Aristocats is. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio. You can also email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. we got news of the week coming up. But first, a quick break. Hey, guys. My name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney trip, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media channels at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News of the week is Star Wars related. So, if you have not watched The Mandalorian yet, stop listening right now. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. I'm going to say it one more time. If you did not watch Mandalorian this week, go away. <laughs> you have been warned. post credit scene of Mandalorian. As if they didn't give you enough to process, and that's all we'll say because I, I don't want to... Yeah. If you haven't tuned out yet, I really don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, and eventually we'll discuss Mandalorian. We'll discuss the whole season. We did it last year. We'll do it again at a later date. The Book of Boba Fett is coming. December 2021. This was not something that had been announced at Investor Day. They knew that they had the season finale of Mando coming. They wanted to save this as a surprise. And I just about fell out of my damn chair when this happened. I love that they saved this. And and Favreau really gave this one. He did this for the fans, which I think is amazing. Because, of course, it's all about the investors. Of course, you have to appease the people that are, are paying you money. But I love that he held this to a point where we were like, did they really actually keep it from the investors? And they had announced Mando season three is coming out Christmas of next year. Right. And we thought maybe it was going to be sort of like Captain America where it changes hands. And because, 
now Mando's story with the child is finished, are they going to pass the baton to Boba Fett? Nope, we're just getting both. Yeah, we're going to have both. Um, Favreau's a genius. And this kind of makes sense because for years there was the rumor of the Boba Fett movie. And like it seemed like every three months, it was like quarterly, you got the fake fan-made teaser trailer for the Boba Fett movie um, that everybody thought would be real and it turns out it wasn't. I think after Solo was a box office bust, they've gotten away from doing these Star Wars prequels, which is why Obi-Wan is now going to be a show on Disney+. Plus. Now you've got Boba Fett as a show on Disney+. Plus. I'm, I'm in. I'm interested. I'm excited. I can't wait to see what else they do with this. Same. That's going to do it for us this week on Monoreal Radio. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We will be back next week for a year in review, and damn it if that's not going to be fast. Um, but <laughs> until then, if you guys have to go catch up on the rest of the show, you can find us on your podcast platform of choice. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, monorealradio.com, links to all of the social media, links to the podcast platforms you can find us on, and of course, uh, you can email Email us there as well. Uh, again, that email address, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much. We will be back next week. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.